Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. Like the zhuzhing of the hair. Zhuzh is a good word. It was uh, it's originally, uh, or at least credited to 1930s gay slang in London. Uh, it's a secret code language called Polari, and which is where you get butch and femme and zhuzh and these things that were coming in from sailors started to use terms and bring them out. So. Hello everybody, Chawan here. And today, to continue the necromantic theme that I started uh, with my previous interview with Kim Huggins, I am speaking to a very special guest. I'm speaking to Jesse Hathaway Diaz, co-proprietor of the online store Wolf and Goat. Which one are you? Are, the, are you the wolf or the goat? I'm the goat. Why are you the goat? I'm the goat. <laughs> ah, that goat. Uh, yeah, that goat. <laughs> It's a, it's a, Troy is the wolf, I'm the goat. It was just personality types and patrons. That's what sounds like a British pub, and that's important, too. I'm always interested in knowing how people identify, or if they, you know, like, what they want to be identified as. Like, I identify as Korean-American. I like to have that Korean in front of the American. So, yeah. how do you like to identify? I identify as bicultural. Like, my father is, I would say, Anglo-American, is a general European. My mother is... Within the community, we'd say she's Chicana. She's American-Mexican. Her family is half from New Mexico, but from before conquest, like that far back. And the other half is from central Mexico, and they merged. So I sometimes say I'm Mexican-American um, amongst the Mexican-American community. They'll say, where are your family from? And I'll say, New Mexico, partially. And they'll be like, oh, you're Chicano. I'm like, yes, I'm Chicano. Because we have a different, our food is different, our slang is different, our, our way of being is based to the southwest United States. And specifically, if you're L.A. Chicano or, or California Chicano, you have a slightly different vibe than perhaps some of the others. I totally get what you mean, because East Coast Korean Americans are very different from West Coast, mm -hmm. like L.A. K-Town. Very different yep. from New York City K-Town. Yes, and very. <laughs> yeah, right? Grew up uh, around uh, Orisha tradition, which is Cuban, Afro-Cuban, uh, and... Uh, also became heavily involved in that in my late teens and then was initiated fully in my 20s. So I'm uh, initiated in what is commonly known as Santeria as well. Uh, and then I'm um, also initiated in Kimbanda as well, which is uh, Afro-Brazilian, uh, Congolese, European, Yoruba hybrid. It is a, a conglomerate sorcery in Brazil. What attracted um, you to all those traditions? Orisha I grew up with. I grew up around. I knew family members that were involved. Uh, I kind of avoided it for a while because it was more attracted to some other traditions. And with Kimbanda, I first found out about when I was in my teens uh, through Umbanda and Brazilian spiritism and uh, was attracted to the fact that it was sorcerous. It was not imposing religion upon anything, that the idea that you are not slave to anything, you, are, you make choices, and you are you, the only thing you are slave to is the outcomes of your actions. And you try and make good decisions based on what those are, but who am I to tell you what to do? 
that even the morality of religions out there, it needs to be something that you internalize and have your own compass with and your own wrestling with. This is what makes a person. A person who just follows instructions is not, it's not a good person. And in most contemporary religions, it gives the semblance. People think they're doing well, but they don't know how to think for themselves. You know, they, they are put in a stressful situation. They revert to their base needs and they don't make choices that are in line with what they say they believe. Whereas if you are constantly confronted with the things that you are scared of or, or repelled by, attraction and repulsion are both really good forces to, to see what we are about. Yamanda in many ways is, it externalizes our devils and makes you confront them and they are forces that can possess and inform our work. If you choose to wrestle with them further, you can learn a lot from taking them to tea and, and making allies out of them. Most people, when they do religion, it's because they just want to bypass all their shadows and they just want to yep. be around people and be in a situation where it's just love and light. It's just positivity. I can see why religions would think, oh, these traditions are devilish, demonic, things like that, mm -hmm. because you're constantly going against what religion is trying to get you to do, which is only deal with the love and light. Fields of Blood, she's an ex-nun and a historian. And she talks about how American concepts of religion are one of the hardest things to translate because it, it doesn't necessarily involve culture and lifestyle, but it does, but people think it doesn't. There's this illusion of separation of church and state. But religion has always justified politics. That is what religion does. It sits there to put a king in power, and for the king to feel morally right, we create good and evil enemies so that when we go to war, we say we're good and the other people are evil. And you find many people now that are anti-religion, anti-church, but they still think the enemy is evil. You're, like, you're using moralistic, dualistic words that are based in religion. Religion itself has to serve all those functions. I think individual systems within it, that's a different thing. But the, 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 the myth and the struggle with individuality is a, is a very interesting part of Western culture, especially in magic. Of, it's my will. It's my will. That is, that's the most important thing. The world revolves around me. That, that many magicians get into. And I, I think one of the reasons that I'm constantly attracted to uh, ATRs, ADRs, is the reliance on community, the, the understanding that you are part of a network and you don't have to choose, you don't have to get along with everyone. But when there's a common goal, you have to put your stuff aside, you have to mop the room and you have to do, you have to do the laundry in order for the thing to happen. And that part is not as common in Western magic. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. It's just that that part of the of the grimoire seems to have been left out. What um, are ATRs and ADRs? You mentioned those acronyms. Yeah, uh, ATR is uh, an acronym for African Traditional Religion. Uh, ADR is Afro Diasporic Religion. Um, you'll often see ADT, Afro Diasporic Tradition, as well because of what is a religion. It's hard to define these things, and many of the traditions don't quite fit the anthropological definitions of religion. They would fit practice or sorceress practices or pact-based systems, but not necessarily religion. Um, but things that are derived from usually West and cent Central African uh, traditions that are were uh, brought over during the slave trade and survived. Many of us from Latin American descent have African ancestry as well, uh, as well as mixed with indigenous and a very Catholic overlay. So uh, like Orisha tradition, for, for, as I practice, it comes through Cuba. There are research traditions in Trinidad and Brazil, especially. Um, but you're talking about, for instance, uh, a diasporic tradition that has adapted to the herbs and the landscape of this land, but rooted in a West African cosmology, usually. Um, specifically, the Yoruba are the, 
most prolific. Um, there are probably 40 million people on the planet that are practicing Orisha religion in some way, which is the, the traditions of the Yoruba people. But you don't read about it still in textbooks. It's viewed as like the thing that's done in the Bronx with chickens and Florida water. There's an adaptation that happens. And so the, the Catholic traditions become very uh, strong, intact versions of indigenous traditions and meld through the years in this way. So it's very hard. It's why Latin American Catholicism looks so different. Families together, which Protestants broke up on purpose, uh, from the slave families were kept together and ethnic groups were kept together. As long as you obeyed the rules and did things that you were supposed to do, uh, you still had your ethnic identity intact. And so they would say, pick a saint to be the saint of your, of your people, uh, of your cabildo is what they called them in Cuba, of, of a club, basically, a fraternity. And that saint was often syncretized to a deity. It could be masking that deity. So the difference between uh, a syncretism that happens organically versus we pick this deity or this saint because it reminds us of our deity and now we've melded the two on purpose. So there's a difference there. One is what happens to those of us that are in the States culturally and we start to speak a hybrid of English and whatever our, our parent languages are versus speaking the language and saying, oh, I'm going to translate it into this. There's different, I think language parallels work really, really well with religious and spiritual parallels within New World traditions. Also very difficult to understand for people who don't speak more than one language or are, are, are in a monoculture. A lot of people don't know this, but Korea uh, has the most martyrs like of almost every other country. Um, and wow. what happened was that first the, the Korean aristocracy, they went to China where the Catholic missionaries were. They learned about Catholicism. Then they came back to Korea, not the European missionaries, but the Koreans themselves came to came back home, started to teach Catholicism. And so when the actual missionaries came to Korea, like almost 100 years later, they were just like, oh, my God, there's like thousands of them. What happened? But it was like a homegrown Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And one of the theories about why Japan wasn't so keen about going into Christianity Christianity, but Korea was really into Christianity, was that it was easy to transpose Christian ideas to Korean indigenous religion because there's this concept of a Hananim, which means a sky god, which mm -hmm. is very similar to Mongolian um, religion. So there's this one mm -hmm. powerful sky deity. And so we actually call God Hananim, like the Catholic, the Christian mm -hmm. God, we call him Hananim, sky god. There you go. So mm -hmm. it, it's similar to that. And you'll see that a lot of Catholic families in Korea, they still have Neo-Confucian rituals that they do, even though you're not mm -hmm. supposed to worship ancestors. I mean, thousands and thousands of years of tradition die hard. So you'll yes. have super Catholic families, like my family in Korea is Catholic, but we still do worshiping of the ancestors on Salat. And mm -hmm. I'm sure the Vatican would be like, no, I don't know about that. But millions of Koreans do it. Absolutely. I mean, it, I think it's interesting when you look at the Spanish Inquisition when it came to the New World and people were being tried for things. When someone would just say they used a love filter and prayed to St. Christopher that this person would love them, the court was like, I don't care. That's not important. You know, nobody died. Keep that case because they didn't, because they were all based out of Mexico City and they didn't want to travel 1,800 miles to the north to go try some woman that had been accused of love magic. So there was this different addressing of things that were happening there. And also you got a very specific uh, build or a lilt to the um, mention of women and magic a lot in Mesoamerican in, in, during the colonial era, which was not as common. You had the vilification of women and saying they were not human as witches in Europe, but talking about indigenous women as sorceresses, 
started happening a lot more in Mesoamerica. Uh, sorcerers being human, which is not. Why the difference? I think a lot of it has to do, I think there's a lot of influences going into there, but for instance, the indigenous people were viewed to have souls in the whole racial uh, invention of and justification for the slave trade. Part of that was is that indigenous people often died from disease right away, so there was no good slave force amongst the indigenous. Some were taken into slavery, but many also resisted or killed themselves or killed their, people would sneak in and kill the slaves um, uh, from their own tribe. So it's, it's, a, it's a different thing. And to justify and say that Africans did not have souls, and that's why they could be brought in. But part of it was, um, I think, it's still a lie because there was amazing civilizations in Africa, the huge networks of, of urban societies. Most of gold in medieval Europe came out of Mali. Like, they, they, like, that's where gold comes from in medieval Europe. They didn't have that much gold themselves. They were still re recycling Roman and Greek gold, which a lot of it was from Africa. So they needed a new source, which the New World had, but it was also uh, cities that they first were exposed to. By the time they got to uh, Cusco and to Nochitlan in Mexico City, these were cities that were said to be like Mexico City was taller and bigger than any other city they'd seen in the world at that time. The Spaniards said it is bigger than Sevilla, and the, the cathedral there is more grand. Surely these people were Christian at some point and fell into witchcraft and the devil tempted them out of it. So their justification for civilization was that they had been Christian at some point. That's how they described it, because they couldn't imagine anybody not Christian having civilization, which is its own weird thing, because there's also the fact that the Spaniards that were writing letters home, Cortez, was trying to get more funding. So you had to make things look sensational, which is one of the arguments for how much human sacrifice is documented, that it makes it a much better story and getting more gold from the noble families of Spain, thinking they're going to get returns on their investment if you can say how bloody and gory this is. So they make everything a very extended soap opera. Living a certain way seems to make you more peaceable, seems to work better for people. So there's this way of the emphasis in Orisha about building good character and what that means. And, and that good character is rewarded because it's its own reward, that you become someone who is self-sustaining, that you, are, you understand what your limits are. And in Kimbanda, this would be paralleled to um, what we call crowning the spirit, where there's three phases, and um, because of the virtues of Portuguese language, uh, they call the first phase pagan, but it doesn't necessarily mean pagan like the, the religious connotation. It means wild. Um, uh, then there's a baptized phase and a crown phase, and this is about, I compare it to acting all the time. Uh, acting background is a huge thing for me. I went to, went to college for, for acting and linguistics, but when you first get a part, you're enraptured with it. Let's say you're assigned Lady Macbeth, and, and it's an amazing part. You're drunk on it. You're seeing all the possibilities of what it is. In rehearsal, you're practically strangling Macbeth as well as having sex with him on stage and all these other things, and you're, half, you're more of a witch than those other witches ever will be. And then the director comes in and says, no, you've got to cross here. This time, you've got to wear this costume. You've got to say it like this. By this point, cross to the light here, and all of a sudden, you have chains on you, and you're like, oh, my God, I hate this. This is not what I signed up for. But any actor knows you'll see through it at some point. That structure is something to kind of fight against. And I think all of us go over in relationships with spirits in this way, um, especially when initiation happens. It's like that first phase of baptism happens where you have this idea of who Freya is and then you start working with other people. And now there's a group idea of what Freya is. And it's a little bit different than yours. And you're trying to figure out, like, is this is this the same thing? I don't understand. I don't really feel it the same way. It's not as wild and untamed as it was. But at a certain point, there's a possibility in Gimanda would call it being crowned. Um, it's not the same as saying that in an Orisha term where we talk about putting the spirit into the head, but it means that the spirit gains a crown. Within acting, it would be like 
during performance with all of these limitations of you have 20 seconds to say this one sentence as you cross stage left down to that light, that suddenly there's more possibility in that 20 seconds than you ever had when you were wild and untamed and doing everything. That you understand how your breath is placed, where you're holding your body, you understand every footstep you're making, and it is a different awareness. Something is now more elevated. And so when the spirit becomes crowned in Kimbanda, there is a relationship between the two of you. It knows your limitations, you know it. You have merged with it to the point where it can do horrible, nasty things if that's who you are. But for the most part, it doesn't act without your consent, and there's uh, an understanding. It's a good parallel for, for friendships as well. You know, when you fur or you go out on a date and like, oh, this person's amazing. And then like three dates in, they said the one thing that's just like, oh, I don't know if I could work with this. <laughs> and you stick it out. And after like six weeks or eight weeks or six months, you're like, you know, this is a good person. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's a relationship. But there's these phases like that. And I find that part of it very interesting, that it can start off as very pragmatic. And that is the most important thing with these traditions. If I do this thing, will it happen? That's what people want to know. That's what that's what my Brazilian clients want to know. If you do this thing for me, will it happen? Well, let's find out. Let's find out what the cost is. Because I'm just a contract broker in Kimbanda. I'm hiring spirits that will do this thing. I'm negotiating the terms of the contract. They want six chickens for it and a bunch of black cloth. Will you do it? Great. Okay, let's do it. Now, if it doesn't work, they're going to hold me responsible. And they're not going to come back. So I've got to make sure that what's going to happen or say, nope, I'm not taking this job. They say it's too hard. Whatever you're asking for is not worth my time or theirs. You know, there's that side of it. But if they come back a lot of times, they go, what spirit is standing up for me? Because I'm having these dreams of this woman coming and saying I still owe her things. And then they describe the woman. You're like, well, that's actually the Pombojita that's been coming in and asking for things. They just don't know it. So now they start taking an interest and like, I'd like to know more. I'd like to know who the spirit is that's been helping me because now she's demanding less and less. You know, sometimes it's a candle, you know, it can be, it can be everything from water and a candle to a bottle of alcohol to publishing their name in some way in a newspaper. Like all these things can be rewards. I think the number one question that I always get from people who have yet to do magic is why does it work? How does it work? Will it work? And I keep thinking to myself, why is it that some people get really great results and other people don't get such great results? How come some people can do law of attraction and it works great, but for so many others, like you just think about it doesn't happen. What is that special missing link? I, you know, uh, what makes somebody an amazing surgeon? Is it the training? Is it a natural gift? Is it a combination of both? Is it their upbringing? Are they from a surgeon family that all of a sudden like taught them certain things? I think all those things are possibilities, but we tend to view magic as something in that lovely egalitarian Protestant ethic that pervades America as something accessible to all. And I think that that's possibly true. I think a magical universe is accessible to all. But that is at odds with a modern universe in the sense of the atheistic, materialistic modern universe. You see this still in like um, people who believe that at some point we're just going to be looking through a microscope and we're going to see the hidden particle in that plant that does this magical quantum physics thing for us. And that's why the magic works. Traditionally, it's not worried about that. It's saying this herb is corresponding to this energy and it's putting these things together and you are aligning things and increasing probability because of this thing. You're making a magnet for certain things. One of the most valuable things I ever saw teachers do in the arts was to tell the person, like, you're not very good at this. Like, you're going to have to work five times harder. Or, you know, you don't look good on TV. You either need to cultivate on film, you look terrible. I've had friends that were amazing actors on stage told this. 
Like you will never be a film actor or you need to get like a serious surgery to either go uglier or, or more conventionally beautiful to get on TV. Now, does that mean that they're never going to get work? The occasional person will still be at work on TV, but they were just told a valuable piece of advice. Practically, their propensity is not for that. So who would be a natural fit to do Kimbanda? It's a good question. You've got to be able to remain open to change and to roll with the punches of life. If you think you can control everything, if you're coming to Kimbanda to control everything, you will fail. The spirits rebel against static identity and especially your static identity. The minute you think I'm big, bad, and powerful, they will do everything to tear you down to remind you that you are not. If you're not someone who can follow through on your your promises, don't come. You know, there's I am just talking to someone in Brazil, uh, a friend who is is counseling a woman who made a promise to one of our spirits, and she had to make a simple offering of uh, pade is, is cornmeal and palm oil and some chili peppers. She didn't do it, and the spirit is starting to possess her. And he came down and told her what she had to do now, which was a lot more involved than if she had just made the damn offering of cornmeal and palm oil. And it's a he's a pleasant spirit. Now, is punishing thing is it petty? No, she broke her word. He did something really important for her, and she broke her word. Where's the cost there? Sometimes people think if you can't see it, it's not going to catch up with you. That's its own thing. People who are going to practice Himbanda do need a certain amount of daring. They need to get over the kind of Christian morality side of things. Uh, what's good for you might not be good for other people. So you may choose to be very nun-like with your Kimbanda and only just use these spirits to, to get advice and to learn agency and to understand what your options are for something. Someone else may be out there doing magic all the time, trying to control every person they work with, laying powders down constantly and doing things, but they're going to get exhausted at that at some point. You cannot control everything. The traditions that are initiated like this are temple-based where there's a community. You've got to be able to read the room, meaning we're not a textual-based tradition. There are books out there, but when you come into a room, you have to be able to see what's going on. You have to anticipate what's going to be needed, whether it's carrying a mop bucket over to clean the mess that just happened or whether you see someone struggling with a bird and you're going to go help hold it. You will not excel in these traditions without that anticipation, without being able to understand that it is more than just what's in your head. There's a, a kind of old expression within the Ocha community, which is don't trust a santero that doesn't know how to mop because it means they've never done work. They've never done the actual work. You can sit there and theorize about the Orishas and what they're like all you want. But if you can't mop, it means that you there's a lot of mopping in our ceremonies just to clean up all the things that happen. Spilled water, spilled herbs, spilled food, spilled blood, everything. If you cannot do that, what are you doing? You know, it's it's a similar thing. If, if someone doesn't know how to eat at our tables, we can tell who's been around the community or not. There are certain table manners, table rules that are there. If someone doesn't have them, nah, they might be made, they might be initiated, but they weren't trained. And therefore, they can't be trusted because they can't fill in the blanks with what we do. They're filling in the blanks with what they do. So their second nature, their instinct is not trained. That only comes from exposure. If I come to your house, there's a certain way of doing things that you have. When we go to your family's house together, there's even another level of things there. Now, if I don't know those things, I have to be very careful and make sure that I'm in a neutral place and I'm trying to do things. I might ask you advice ahead of time, but that's that's what's required. And a lot of that is um, the contextual side of magic is that is what's transmitted in the cigarette breaks and the food breaks and these things. These traditions are a lot about food, food for the people, food for the spirits. 
make sure everybody has a roof over their head, a plate of food, and someone to talk to, to have a community with. Even if you're an antisocial misanthrope, you've got to have some person that you can run things past. And they can be the bridge to the other people. How scary, and I use scary in like bunny ears, how <laughs> scary is Kimbanda? I mean, it depends on the temple. It depends on what person is, uh, what they're getting out of it. Eshrim um, Pumbajira can be violent when they come down. They like to call you on your shit. If you're someone who, in front of a room of people, if you've been cheating on your spouse and you bring your spouse to a drumming, a spirit can come down and announce to everyone that you are cheating on her. And she will find out. They will empower her to figure out how to get, you know, if you say the wrong thing. They could spill your secrets about who you're cursing in the room. They could, a spirit could come down and say, you didn't pay them, and now they're going to spill all your, your, your tea in front of everyone. Um, there are people that are beaten by the spirits physically or get possessed and are, are held prisoner by the spirits. This happens in voodoo as well. Um, but uh, under a good uh, bai or uh, mai, the, the male and female heads, or, or sometimes they're called saladors, or tata and yaya in some houses, um, they are still controlled. You know, they, the, the leaders are trying to say, okay, we'll let this come down so far, but if it's there, fine, we'll make it go away. Because not everybody's spirits are the same. There are this variant of what we talked about from pagan to crown, and they'll, they'll act differently. Um, but also their, their mood when they come down. Some nights they're amused and are laughing. They always laugh when they come down. Um, but uh, other nights they're agitated, and they laugh in a different way, and they're coming after people. So I think um, scary, yes. Scary in the sense that it will make you confront honesty, with honesty, what you're dealing with. There is, there is little to hide, and they will find out. Those spirits are very good at exposing those things. As far as animal sacrifice, you know, the caveat there of, of, of what does that mean? Um, anybody who eats meat, uh, the meat has to come from somewhere, and when we offer an animal, the meat is used. Um, in fact, in, in a lot of these traditions, we're using every part of the animal because all the innards and stuff might be reduced down to ash and added into soaps and things like that because it's blessed the meat that you then cook up and, and serve to everyone the next day was offered the night before. And there's a lot of things you can do. But that's like any tradition. Is it the right fit for someone? The only way to know that is to find out. Um, you know, those things start with readings, with divination, with reading about the culture, watching things about it. A lot of the things that are available on YouTube are often Umbanda temples that are everybody's dressed up in big crinolines and fruity dresses and things like that. The Kimbanda I know is not like that so much. There's not so many costume changes. Um, but the advice must be accurate when it's given through divination and the spirits must speak true. So if they tell you to do something, a lot of times there's people resorting, they, they cry during a reading because it's just a lot is said. And that has developed a reputation for being a cult of, of gay people and transvestites and transsexuals and prostitutes and gangsters. On one level that's true, but what it is is there's no morality imposed. So they want you to be honestly you. If you are in the closet, they don't like this. They want you to just be gay and go have sex with people. <laughs> if you're if you're uh, flamboyantly gay and you're trying not to show, they're going to pull it out of you. And a bumajira might start to possess you, so you get more and more comfortable with being flamboyant because you should not be ashamed of who you are. But if you're not who you say you are, they will rake and tear at that until they expose it. <laughs> Hey everyone. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan signing off.